Today, on the All You Need to Know About Human Physiology podcast, we will be covering the major concepts of the central nervous system, including the major regions and their major functions and relationships, in addition to a representation of how sensation works, including receptive fields, lateral inhibition, acuity, frequency coding, and adaptation. So let's get started. The central nervous system is composed of the brain and the spinal cord. However, these parts of our body are composed of many more structures that aid to the function of our nervous system. Let's start with the brain. The brain involves the cerebrum, diencephalon, and the brainstem, as seen on slide 4. The cerebrum is divided into four lobes, the frontal, the parietal, the occipital, and the temporal. Meyer explains that the frontal lobe is for planning and is found at the front of the brain. The parietal lobe is for sensory motor functions and is found at the top of the brain. The occipital lobe is for vision and is found at the back of the brain. And lastly, the temporal lobe is for hearing and language and is found at the side of the brain. So question, if you were running a marathon, which lobes would you expect to be working the most? Yes, the parietal lobe and occipital lobes would be key as they coordinate our motor and vision functions that are necessary while we are running. Moving on to the cerebrum, we see that in the cerebrum lies the limbic system, which is composed of the cingulate gyrus, amygdala, and the hippocampus. The cingulate gyrus is emotion-heavy, the hippocampus is more memory-oriented, and the amygdala is kind of a combination of both emotion, and memory. Another major part of the brain is the brainstem. Meyer notes that the brainstem is composed of the cerebellum, midbrain, pons, and the medulla oblongata, and it involves reticular formation as well. The cerebellum coordinates motion and balance as shown on slide 31. A helpful way I remember what the function of the cerebellum is, is thinking, walk it like I talk it, a song by Migos. I think it is helpful because I relate walking to balance, so it allows me to remember the cerebellum more by relating it to a song that I know. Try brainstorming other ways you use to remember the parts of the brain. Next, Meyer explains that reticular formation has to do with coordinating arousal, sleep, pain, and muscle control. The midbrain coordinates eye control movement, and the pons controls breathing and the efficacy of signal transmission between the cerebellum and the cerebrum. Finally, the medulla oblongata controls all of our involuntary functions like blood pressure and vomiting, things that we don't really have a conscious awareness of. An important point to note about the medulla is that it has several tracks of clusters of axons and myelin, which can lead to crossing over. Crossing over, Meyer says, leads to the idea that much of the sensory and motor information is made on the left side of the body, and it makes synapses in our right brain. Now that we understand the brain a bit more, let's focus on the spinal cord. The spinal cord is separated into four regions, starting from cervical, then thoracic, then lumbar, and finally sacral. A good memory peg in order to memorize the order is Casey throws laundry on Sundays. Question, what region of the spinal cord will you find in the lower back? Yes, the lumbar region 
is what we see in the lower back because the sacral goes down closer to your pelvis. Additionally, the spinal cord has both gray and white matter. The gray matter is composed of cell bodies or somas, and the white matter is composed of axons and myelins. Additionally, when explaining the spinal cord, a discussion of anatomical orientation is needed. When dorsal is used, it means to the back, and when ventral is used, it means to the front. Also, lateral is to the sides and medial is towards the middle. Further, Meyer explains that afferent means sensory, while efferent means motor. So we can see that afferent spinal tracts are more dorsal or lateral, sending information to the brain, while efferent spinal tracts are medial and lateral, obtaining information from the brain. Let us now look to the relationships between the different parts of the central nervous system. Each part of our nervous system has a specific function, and information is constantly being relayed through synapses and neurons. For example, when we talk about complex pathways, we see that language and personality come to view. The relationships between the different lobes and the cortexes of the brain is seen when we read words and speak, or if we hear words and speak those same words. For example, we see on slide 61, if we read a word, this information is sent to the visual cortex because we are reading an image or looking at um, a set of words. Then it is sent to Wernicke's area, which means input, then to Broca's area, which means output, and finally to the motor cortex or the tongue so that the actual speech can occur. Additionally, when we are studying for an exam, learning and memory is affected by the hippocampus's ability to create new memories, and our frontal lobe is focused on the higher order planning and processing of the information we are trying to study. That means planning out what we're going to study and how we're going to do it, and just like what we're doing right now, a study guide. So as you can see, the nervous system is connected in several ways, and these relationships guide us to have the complex functions that we do. So question, now that we understand the process of speaking a written word, how would that contrast from speaking a heard word? Perfect. In contrast, the signal would be understood in the cochlea, sent to the auditory cortex, then Wernicke's area, then Broca's area, and finally again to the motor cortex to cause for our speech. The brain is protected by several structures. Meyer explains that some of these include the hair, skin, and cranium, the venous fluid, the meninges, cerebrospinal fluid, and the blood-brain barrier. As for the hair, skin, and cranium, the cranium is a skull, and all of these features allow for the physical protection and support of the brain. The venous fluid allows for a soft cushioning of the brain, and the meninges are tough connective tissue adding for that physical support. As shown on slide 14, the cerebral spinal fluid is secreted into the ventricles, which allows it to support the central nervous system regions. Additionally, it can allow for nutrient transport, adding to both its protection in chemical and physical manners. 
The blood-brain barrier is a set of tight junctions that limit the transfer of certain molecules between apical and basal sides, and they are stimulated by astrocytes, a type of glial cell. Question, how does the spinal tap relate to cerebral spinal fluid? Yes, exactly. During a spinal tap, cerebrospinal fluid is removed from the lumbar region in order to diagnose or identify certain problems. And going back to what we said before, where can we find the lumbar region? Exactly, in the lower back. So they would take out some of the fluid from that lower back region. Okay, now that we are on the subject of problems or pathologies, let us look to some that can occur in the central nervous system. Certain diseases of the CNS can arise from ion balance issues, neurotransmitter release, or even drugs. Conversely, nerve injury, in the case of limited regrowth or functional damage, can also result in diseases of the nervous system. There are several examples of pathologies of the brain, but a personal example is Parkinson's disease. My grandpa actually suffered from Parkinson's and in his condition, he had a lot of motor trouble. It would be hard for him to write, walk, or speak. So going off of that point, what neurotransmitter is involved with Parkinson's disease? Exactly. A lack of dopamine causes these problems that I just talked about that has to do with Parkinson's disease. In order to start our next discussion of sensation, let's first talk about what is a stimulus. A stimulus can be internal or external, and it is what causes a response or the, or the ability to have a sensation. Most stimuli bind to receptors. Additionally, our sensations are able to be divided into groups. We have special senses, which we learned early on in life, but we also have some subconscious senses, including blood pressure levels, blood glucose concentration, body temperature, and more as shown on slide 70. And these are ones that we don't consciously think about or know that they are happening at all times. Meyer explains that true trans through transduction facilitated by thresholds and graded potentials and transmission facilitated by primary and secondary neurons, we are able to see how our senses are actually felt. Through receptive fields, we see how separate primary receptive fields can converge together to form a secondary neuron, resulting in a greater signal. However, Meyer relays that convergence of neurons can lead to a lower resolution or acuity of the signal. With less convergence, you can see higher acuity being able to distinguish each single more easily. So going off of that point, if three primary neurons converge, can you differentiate each neuron in the single secondary neuron? Correct. Once converged, you cannot tell any information about each primary neuron receptive field. Another depiction of receptive fields can be seen through the homunculus. The homunculus shows a distortion. I thought the image on slide 90 was extremely interesting because it clearly defines the important structures of the body and emphasizes them. As shown, the tongue and jaw are very close to each other, and they are close to the auditory cortex, explaining that learning is learned very early on and is important. 
I also like the exaggeration of the hand features, like the fingers and thumbs, because it shows that a large majority of our touch sensations are from these features compared to other places on our body like our backs. Receptive fields show how different neurons can converge, allowing for a stronger signal, as shown when we feel something more drastically on our hand compared to our backs. This is due to the higher acuity and resolution that is found in our fingers or hands, as Meyer explains. Going on from that, let's talk about lateral inhibition. Lateral inhibition can lead to more acuity. As shown in the image on slide 77, there are five primary neurons. Neuron B, though, is the main neuron because it is located closest to the origin of the stimulus. The two neurons that are right next to B are neurons A and C, and they are close by, so they still generate some response when there is a stimulus. However, neuron B can discriminate or inhibit the neighboring neurons, leading to decreased strength and rate of firing of neurons A and C, allowing for the point of origin of the stimulus to be clearly seen. So with lateral inhibition, let's ask some questions. Say there is no lateral inhibition occurring between three neurons, A, B, and C, and neuron B is closest to the stimulus. What can we say to describe the relative neurotransmitter release of the neurons? Exactly. Neuron B would release the most neurotransmitters, while A and C would still release some neurotransmitter, just a lesser amount compared to B. However, with lateral inhibition, we would see that neurons A and C would release no neurotransmitter if B, neuron B, inhibited A and C. Now that we understand these processes more, let's talk a little bit more on acuity. I thought the image on slide 76 was very interesting. It shows that as two signals are further from each other, the ability to discriminate and understand the signals increases. However, the closer they are, understanding the separate signals is increasingly more difficult. Additionally, Dr. Meyer says that increased convergence leads to decreased resolution and a decreased ability to differentiate the signals from each other. Convergence, though, allows for smaller signals to combine together, leading to increased strength and ability to be processed, showing high acuity. Moving on from acuity, let's talk about frequency coding. As we went over last week, Meyer notes that frequency coding is seen when a stronger and longer duration stimulus leads to increased amount of action potentials occurring. If there are more action potentials open, what does this mean for neurotransmitter release? Exactly. An increase in action potentials leads to an increase in neurotransmitter release. So we can say that neurotransmitter release is directly proportional to the frequency of action potentials opening and a stronger stimulus. Our last topic focuses on adaptation. Adaptation is how, as time goes on, we respond less and less to a certain stimuli. As shown on slide 87, tonic receptors show slow adaptation to receptors for a particular amount of time. Tonic receptors show a response at the onset, but the response slowly slowly diminishes back to baseline as time moves on. Basic receptors rapidly adapt to a constant stimulus and turn off, 
and they only fire again once stimulus halts or is not constant anymore. So that's all for for today. I hope you learned something about the major concepts of the central nervous system, including the major regions and the major functions and relationships, in addition to a representation of how sensation works, including receptive fields, lateral inhibition, acuity, frequency coding, and adaptation. See you next week for a further discussion about the COVID-19 and immune system. All of the information today was brought to you by the lecture titled Bio3200 MLO4204 by Dr. Karen Meyer. Thanks!